If you have a Bible, would you take it, please, and turn to John chapter 8. John 8 will be in verse 31 through the end of the chapter uh, this Sunday. And then we will be out of John for three weeks, which is not my design, but I'm trusting God's sovereignty. Um, Rob Whitty will be preaching for us, Lord willing, next Sunday. Um, and then we have Jake and Joshua will be filling the pulpit for a couple weeks as Andrew and I will be out of town. Um, but we will be in John 8 uh, today, and then we'll be back in John uh, in September. As you turn to John 8, let me remind you that John has written this gospel so that we might believe in Jesus and find life in him. And with that purpose in mind, he also wants to make clear the nature of true belief. In other words, just what does it look like to truly believe in Jesus? Our family doesn't watch a lot of sports on TV, but we really get into the NCAA basketball tournament whenever it comes around. Uh, we've had our kids fill out brackets for a long time, and um, I think maybe found a way for children under one to fill out a bracket somehow, uh, just for the fun of it. Uh, and the youngest of them, when we watch those games, we usually enjoy that first weekend, you know, when there's so many things going on and upsets. And, uh, but the youngest among them, and they've all grown sort of out of this, but when they were rooting for the team, they always wanted to root for the team that was going to win, which is obviously very unpredictable. And it meant that they would root for a different team throughout the, the course of the game. So if in the first quarter one team was up by 10 or 20 points, that was the team they wanted to win. But if the fourth quarter came around and that lead had shrunk or even gone away, they'd start rooting for the opposite team because they wanted to root for the winner. Their allegiances would go back and forth. That's an extreme example of what some people call fair weather fans. Um, we're all a fair weather fan probably to one degree or another. And it's not really a big deal to get caught up in the excitement of a basketball game or some other sport. But as we look at John 8, we find that Jesus talks about something that we might call fair weather faith. Or maybe more pointedly, what we might call false faith. We read in verse 30 of, of John 8, the last verse of last week's passage, it says, as he, Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. After which, verse 31 tells us that Jesus was speaking to the Jews who had believed. Those who had believed, that's who he's talking to. And yet, that conversation that stretches from verse 31 all the way through verse 59 ends in this way in verse 59. So they, the ones who had believed, the ones that Jesus was talking to, so they picked up stones to throw at him. How did that happen? How did this group move from believing in Jesus to wanting to kill Jesus? From apparent faith to obvious anger. What happened? Uh, the answer would seem to be not that they stopped believing in Jesus, but that their faith was proven to not be genuine, genuine in the first place. And the words of Jesus to them in these verses, exposed the fair-weather nature of their faith. 
like the crowd that day, if we have ears to hear, Jesus' words are also going to test our faith. And so John says to each of us today, honestly assess the genuineness of your belief. I think that's a way to think about the main idea of this passage. Honestly assess the genuineness of your belief. As we were looking at our passage last week, we said that the majority of, Ameri- of Americans would likely say that they know God. And of that group, many of them would also say that they believe in Jesus, including most of us, if not all of us in this room. But what does it mean to truly trust in Christ? What is the nature of true saving faith? As we hear these words of of Jesus, we're invited to honestly assess the genuineness of our belief. And it's, it's with our own hearts that we should always begin as we look at a passage like this. What is the, the genuineness of my faith? But these words of Jesus also help us to think about the belief of others so that we can clearly communicate the gospel and so that we can boldly call people not to a fair weather faith or a false faith, but to a true saving faith that abides in the words of Jesus, that acknowledges spiritual bankruptcy, the kind of faith that accepts the divine identity of Jesus. We can, we can joyfully and confidently invite people to, to believe in that way, and in believing in that way, find that Jesus frees us from sin and frees us from death itself. And so as we seek to honestly assess the genuineness of our belief, let's look at John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. A longer passage, so I invite you to engage with me with this these strong words from Christ. Beginning in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word and are truly my disciples, and you will, I'm sorry, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do, you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works, of your, the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and, you, and your will 
is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify, my, glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John invites us to honestly assess the genuineness of our faith. And as we seek to assess the nature of true belief, uh, let me offer three statements drawn from these words of Jesus that will hopefully help us to see what it looks like to trust in Christ. And as we look at these statements along the way, we're going to find answers to other questions that John is often posing, namely, who is Jesus and what is the life that he is offering to us? Notice first that true belief abides in Jesus's words. True belief abides in Jesus's words. Look again at verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The word abide is important in these verses and elsewhere in the Gospel of John. It carries the idea of remaining or continuing. We might get the spiritual meaning of it by considering the earthly meaning of it. So in John chapter 1, verse 38, John and Andrew start to follow Jesus. And you remember the first question that they ask him? They say, where are you staying? Uh, and the word there for staying uh, is the word that is translated abide here. It's the, it's the same word. Now, that wasn't a spiritual question uh, there in John 1.38. They just wanted to know where Jesus was residing. Where was he living? Where was he physically abiding at that time? So to abide in the words of Jesus is to find our home in them. It's to remain in them. It's to live in the words of Christ. 
Jesus uses this word abide to talk about true faith elsewhere in John. He says this in John 5.38 when he condemns the Pharisees for not accepting the witnesses that the Father had given. And you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Very similar. Uh, one chapter later, John 6.56, he tells the crowd, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And here he says that true disciples abide in his word. Jesus is going to talk at length to his disciples about this principle of, of abiding in John 15, which we will eventually get to. But we see that up to this point in John's gospel, the one who truly believes in Jesus has his words abiding in him, and he or she also abides in the words of Jesus. In a similar way, the true child of God abides in Jesus, and Jesus abides in them. Specifically here, the emphasis is on the fact that a true child of God through faith in Jesus abides, remains, holds to the teachings of Jesus. D.A. Carson says that this means, quote, such a person obeys it, seeks to understand it better, and finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when other forces flatly oppose it. So to abide in the words of Jesus is to find our life and our home in them. It is to let his words control us and instruct us more than any other words and to hold to his truth when everyone else stands against it and to hold to his truth for our entire lives. We should be careful to note that this abiding in the words of Jesus is not a work not something that earns our salvation, but it's a mark of the fact that our belief in Jesus is genuine. This afternoon, the students are going to look at question 33 of the New City Catechism. The question is, should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation through their own works or anywhere else? What's the simple answer to that? No. <laughs> the answer is no, they should not, as everything necessary to salvation is found in Christ. To seek salvation through good works is a denial that Christ is the only Redeemer and Savior. So Jesus is not calling us to good works. The hope of salvation is found in Christ alone and it's faith in his work of redemption on the cross that saves us. But Jesus is clear that true saving faith is the kind of faith that abides in Jesus' words. We can remember in, in verse 12 that Jesus is the light of the world and it's those who follow him who find the light of life. True belief leads to a life that follows after Jesus and his ways. And those who follow Jesus and find in Christ everything necessary for our salvation will also find in his words the life and the light that their hearts are seeking after. And not just that, but Jesus says that when we trust in him, and abide in his truth, we will find something else. We will find freedom. We will know the truth of Christ, and that truth will set us free from our bondage to sin and to self, from our enslavement to the world and the flesh and the devil. Now, as you read this passage, you'll note that that announcement of freedom sparked something in the Pharisees who had just believed in Jesus, and it reveals a second aspect of true belief. So true belief not only abides in the words of Jesus, but true belief acknowledges our spiritual bankruptcy. 
True belief acknowledges our spiritual bankruptcy. The first place that we see this spiritual bankruptcy or that we could consider how Jesus describes it is the fact that we are slaves to sin. So true belief acknowledges our spiritual bankruptcy and the first thing that we acknowledge is that we are slaves to sin. When Jesus says that it's through trusting in him that people are going to be set free, the Pharisees don't hear that as good news. They hear that as an assault on their supposed spiritual maturity and heritage. To be set free would mean that at some point they were enslaved or imprisoned. If you're sitting in your home on your couch and I break down your front door and I say, you're free, <laughs> you'll think I'm crazy, right? Because you don't feel like you're trapped. You don't feel as if you are imprisoned. But if you're a prisoner of war and a soldier arrives and announces, you're free, your response is going to be completely different. The question is, what if you're imprisoned and you don't know it? Well, the Pharisees, like all of us, naturally think that they're sitting on their couches and that they are free. So they say to Jesus, we've never been imprisoned to anyone. We are free children of Abraham, which is really a strange and kind of crazy thing for them to say, isn't it? They're celebrating a feast. What was that feast? It was a feast to remember when they were liberated from what? From slavery. And not only that, but they're surrounded by the Romans. They're living under Roman rule at that present time. So even in their earthly way, this earthly way of thinking, their assertion that they're free is, and that they've never been enslaved to anyone is, is really false. But Jesus doesn't even deal with that because more importantly, they miss the fact that he's talking about an unseen slavery, a spiritual slavery. Remember this dichotomy between earthly thinking and spiritual thinking in John's gospel. And Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about earthly slavery. I'm talking about spiritual slavery. So it says, Jesus, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. What a statement. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Who sins? Everyone. Therefore, we are all born in bondage to sin. We like to assert that we are free, that we can do as we please. And that's true. You can do as you please. But apart from the supernatural work of God in our lives, we will always freely choose sin. And we will always choose to seek our salvation apart from repentance to God and faith in Jesus Christ. You and I are free. And in our sinfulness, we always freely choose sin. Charles Spurgeon has written, we declare on scriptural authority that the human will is so set on mischief, so depraved, so inclined to everything that is evil, and so disinclined to everything that is good, that without the powerful, supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will ever be constrained toward Christ. It's a bleak thing, but it's a true thing. And that's how we will remain. Because, verse 35, we have no particular rights as slaves, but, but we know the Son, and the Son has an eternal place in God's house, and by his grace, he can, he can set us free. He can welcome us into his eternal home. But the first step towards that kind of freedom and towards that sonship is to admit our spiritual bankruptcy, to admit that we are slaves to sin. And we find the lack of true belief here in the Pharisees because they're unwilling to admit that they are slaves to sin. 
Jesus also picks on their, up on their assertion to be children of Abraham, and he reveals a second aspect of their spiritual bankruptcy, and it's this, that we are all children of the devil. We're slaves to sin and children of the devil. Hmm. Powerful words from Jesus here, huh? He doesn't deny the fact that the Pharisees were children of Abraham, that they were physical descendants of Abraham's bloodline, but he says that while their family tree could be traced back to him, their, their actions revealed that they had an entirely different father. Jesus, the, the one who came from God the Father and spoke the words of the Father, says that he would have been welcomed by Abraham, and therefore he, would, he should be welcomed by Abraham's children. Abraham would have loved Jesus, and therefore true children of Abraham should love Jesus, which means that their rejection of Jesus reveals that they had a different father. And what is their father like? Well, he's like them. He's a murderer, and he's a liar. Remember, they're, they're seeking to kill Jesus, and they're rejecting the truth, choosing to live, and live in and to perpetuate lies. And, these accu and at these accusations that, that this is what they're doing, they're murderers and they're liars, the Jews double down. That's what we all do when we are cornered with our sin, isn't it? We push back. We say, no, it's, it's not that bad. I'm not, I'm not a child of the devil. They speak of their pure spiritual lineage. They say they're not born of sexual immorality. Possibly a veiled accusation about Jesus' own origins. A question of, well, just who was your earthly father, Jesus? But this doesn't phase Jesus. He knows where he's from. He knows where the people are from. They claim to have Abraham as their father. But they also then say that God is their father. And yet Jesus says that their lack of love for him means that God cannot be their father. And their earthly sinful, nat sinful nature means that apart from being, being born again, they can't even hear Jesus' words. The clearest statement of their origin comes in verse 44. Jesus boldly says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Their father is not Abraham. Their father is not God. Their father is the devil. And like the devil, they lie and they murder, which is what the devil has done from the beginning. Death was on Satan's mind the moment he entered the garden, and he injected its poison into the human race through lies. And so the seeds of death and the sinful nature have been passed down through all generations, including to the Pharisees of, the, of this chapter and including to each one of us in this room. By nature, we are children of wrath. We are children of the devil. Now, what we see here is that the Pharisees were so steeped in murder and in lies that when Jesus spoke the truth, they couldn't hear him. It's as if they were so submerged in the swamp of sin that, that they couldn't break the surface and see with clarity and with, with clearness what was going on. The reality is that we can't even identify righteousness or unrighteousness on our own. But we have a conscience, we know that's true, but we are also supremely confused about what is right and what is wrong. The Jews here want to say that Jesus is a sinner and therefore his words are false, but Jesus says, Fine, accuse me of sin, because he knows that they can't. There's no legitimate accusation against his perfect character. 
And so too, we don't understand perfection. We don't understand righteousness. We look at Jesus and we want to find sin when in actuality the sin is in us. So what does all this mean? There's a lot of words here, aren't there? (laughs) What does all this mean? At the core of this discussion is a group of people who are confident in their natural, inherent, personal goodness who are therefore rejecting the need of a Savior like Jesus. They are so confident in who they are and what they can do that they reject the need of a Savior who would come and die for them. And they remind us that we all have, apart from Christ, a similar pride and a similar blindness that does not want to admit that apart from the work of God in our hearts and lives, we are slaves to sin and we are children of the devil who will never hear and never receive the truth of Jesus unless we are born again and given eyes to see. And if in his mercy he gives us those spiritual eyes to see, then the first thing that we will see is our spiritual bankruptcy. It's the first thing that we will see. I was teaching a Sunday school class years ago, and I remember asking this room full of children, I said, have you ever sinned? Have you ever done anything wrong? And a good number of them just sort of shook their heads. Nope, never done anything wrong. And one little girl raised her hand, and I thought, good, she's going to save this lesson. She's going to expose this room of liars. And I said, yes, what do you have to say? And she says, my brother does bad things sometimes. (laughs) If we can't admit our sin, we are not on the road to salvation. We may not be as bold as that little girl in that Sunday school room, but in our own ways, we all naturally want to believe that we have the freedom to choose Christ and that we will and that we have righteousness on our own and we can do enough, that we have a lineage that somehow makes us acceptable to God in some way and saves us from the slavery to sin. But we are all born spiritually bankrupt. And the first sign that God is at work in our lives is often a deep awareness of our sin and a deep awareness of our need of a Savior. As you speak to others and share the gospel with them, one of the first things that will happen in their hearts is a deep awareness of their spiritual bankruptcy. The true child of God or the one who is on the path towards salvation hears the words of Jesus in verse 31 and verse 32 and doesn't respond by saying, oh, I've never been a slave. Rather, they say, yeah, that's me. I know exactly what Jesus is talking about. I feel deep in my soul that sin has control over me, and I know that there's nothing I can do about it. The person who is born again or who is on the way to being born again hears that they are a child of the devil, and they say, you know what? You're right. I'm a liar. I'm a murderer. I've never murdered one, but in my heart, I just have hatred, and there's nothing about me There's nothing in me that would make me acceptable to God. And that kind of humble confession and repentance is the first step into the kingdom of God. But it's also the the continual step towards life change in in our hearts and in our lives. Martin Luther wrote in the first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. 
Repentance is not just the entrance into the kingdom, but it's the, it's the entire life of a believer. We are always repenting. We who are children of God through faith are always repenting, saying to Jesus, take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. We who are born again and made children of God through faith see the sinfulness that is still in us and still around us, and we want to... We want to to turn away from it. We want to find the freedom that Christ is offering to us. We want to find the love that's found in the Father. We long for the truth of Romans 6 that Jordan read earlier to take root in our hearts so that we would be those who are dead to sin and alive to Christ. I'd say if you are a follower of Christ today and, and you feel enslaved to sin in some way, let me encourage you to meditate on the freedom in Christ that's found, that's described in Romans 6. Confess your sin to God and and then to a brother or sister in Christ and pursue the freedom that is ours through Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, know that you will never be free because of the things that you do. That your lineage, your family heritage, your supposed righteousness will not save you. But only Christ will save you. We see it comes to this place because from this place of confession and repentance, there's a third characteristic of true belief. And it's this, that true belief accepts the divine identity of Jesus. True belief accepts the divine identity of Jesus. You can just say true belief accepts that Jesus is God. The response of the Pharisees in verse 48 is the response of people who are angry and refuse to listen. It is not a logical response. It is not a response that's meant to further the discussion. It is a nasty, and it's a nasty response, and it's intended to incite anger. They call Jesus a Samaritan, again, questioning his lineage, and probably using that word as a racial slur. And then they say that he is possessed by a demon. And yet Jesus doesn't return their insults with another insult, does he? Rather, he calmly dismisses their accusations. He makes clear who he is. He knows exactly who he is. He makes clear what he is offering, and he subtly reminds them that God is their judge and will judge them in the end. As he explains this, he announces announces that if we would accept the divine identity of Jesus, he'll do something amazing. He will rescue us from death. He will rescue us from death. Now, the divinity of Jesus and the offer of eternal life are are intertwined in verses 49 through 59. And they're intertwined because the deity of Jesus and the offer of of eternal life go hand in hand. Who can give eternal life? Only God. Which means that if Jesus is going to legitimately offer eternal life, he has to be God because no one else can give us eternal life. And within this conversation about Abraham, Jesus confronts our earthly understanding of life and of death to show that he is God and that he can hold out to us the promise of life everlasting. Let's try to follow this conversation. In verse 51, Jesus says that the one who keeps his word, who follows him and abides in him, who trusts in him for salvation, that one will never see death. But the Pharisees say, that statement right there, Jesus, proves you have a demon because Abraham died. The prophets 
died, but you're talking about never tasting death. Who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than Abraham, Jesus? Verses 54 and 55, Jesus digresses for a moment. He makes it clear that he's not trying to exalt himself, but that the Father is the one that is exalting him. So later on when he makes it clear that, that he does think he's greater than Abraham, uh, it's, he, he knows that it's the Father who is the one that is making that clear, not him alone. And he says that the reason they're so confused is they don't have ears to hear because they don't know the Father. It means that they're thinking about life and death and Abraham in purely earthly terms. So Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced at the promise of Jesus' day and that Abraham saw Jesus, which the Jews say is crazy because Jesus isn't even 50 years old, but Abraham has seen him? Now, did Abraham see Jesus? I think we could say in one sense that maybe he did even with his physical eyes, if we think about the appearances of the angel of the Lord as, as visits from the pre-incarnate Christ, but even apart from, from that meditation, what Jesus is saying here is that we know that Abraham saw Jesus' day because he saw it with eyes of faith because he was looking for the Messiah, because he believed God, we're told, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Pharisees want to set up Abraham as the poster child for their salvation through lineage campaign. But we know that Abraham was not saved because of his lineage. Abraham was saved by faith in the Messiah, not through his good works, as were all the Old Testament saints. And therefore, Paul says in Galatians 3 that the ones who are children of Abraham are not those who descended from him by blood. What does Paul say in Galatians 3, 7-9? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who are the children of Abraham? Those who believe in Christ. They are the children of Abraham. John the Baptist even goes as far to say, if you're relying on the fact that you're a child of Abraham, know that God could raise up children of Abraham from these stones. So back to John 8. Jesus has been trying to make it clear that he is from the Father. He's sent as the Messiah, and that he is equal to the Father as God in the flesh. But all that, that the crowd hearing him can think about are the physical lineages and the inherent righteousness and the fact that this guy can't be the Savior that they're looking for. So he makes it crystal clear. Makes it so clear that they're ready to stone him on the spot. Look at it again in verse 56. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What an amazing thing that Jesus would say that. This I am statement is not tied to an illustration like the other ones. It's directly tied back, I think, to the statement of God himself to Moses. It's, not a, it is a, it's a claim to deity. It's a claim that he is God. We can add this to the declaration that Jesus is perfect and sinless and also say that Jesus is eternal. 
There's never been a time when he was not, and there will never be a time when he ceases to exist. And as the great I am, he gives and he takes away life. So therefore, if he is the I am, if he is God, then it's true that everyone who believes in him will never see death. We will all die, won't we? We'll all die in the flesh. But if we're in Christ, then there is also this sense in which we will not die. We can have a firm confidence that's been spoken by the I am himself, by God, that if we live and believe in him, we will never die. Verse 59 at that statement, the crowd picks up stones to stone him. Why? Because they rejected his divine identity. And if he is not God, then those words are blasphemy, and they deserve death. If he is God, then they are true. And that's the choice we have. And many respond to the claims of Christ by denying who he is. That's how everyone will naturally respond to Christ. And he's clear in verse 50 that God is the judge of the world, and that rejection of the Son will lead to eternal judgment. But that's not the only option, right? We don't have to stand in opposition to Christ so that we face judgment on the last day. As we come to a close, just think about what Christ is offering to us. We could sum it up in one word. He's offering freedom. Freedom. Freedom from sin and freedom from death. We think we're, we're so free, don't we? We live the land of the free. We imagine that making our own choices, doing everything our sinful heart desires, that that brings freedom. That's even the temptation that we might feel as followers of Christ, that we imagine those who live without the restraints of Jesus' word, who don't have to abide in his word, that they find some sort of freedom. Yet it's the kind of freedom that a fish finds if he leaps out of the water. The fish is made to live in the water, And he thinks that freedom is coming out of the water, but if that happens, what happens to the fish? He dies because the fish is made to live in water and only in the restraints of water does he find true freedom and life. To leave the water is to die. And as children of God, our life, our freedom is found in the words of Christ. To leave them and to follow the world and the flesh and the devil is to choose death, but by God's grace, through his spirit, he invites us to live in the freedom that is found as we walk in the perfect ways of Christ. The words of Jesus offer us freedom from death itself. Jesus, the I am, tells us that as we trust in him, we can know something. We can know that we will never die. The great enemy of death is defeated. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not even death itself. This is what Christ has given to you, Christian. He's given you freedom. Freedom from sin and freedom from death. May our lives glorify him for this unspeakable gift as we seek to walk in the light and in the life of Jesus. Let me invite you into a moment of silence to reflect on the scriptures, and then I will pray.
Father, together now we rejoice and affirm that the words of Jesus are true, that he is exactly who he said he is, that he is the I am, that he was from the Father and only spoke what was from the Father, that every word that he said was true. And we affirm that the truth of these words for us, Lord, that if we practice sin, we are slaves to sin, but that you have come so that if we would abide in your words, we can be free. We believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again so that through faith in him, we do not have to taste death. Lord, fill us with joy and confidence in what Christ has said to know that we are free from sin and we are free from death. All praise and glory to him alone. I ask this in Christ's name, amen.